0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: I am suboptimal. I've been sick for like (laughs) 10 days. I I was kind of sick over Thanksgiving. I think I was a little sick on the show with Mackenzie last week. I kind of was powering through it. And then I got worse. That's the thing about getting sick when you're old. You get worse. I never got worse. I used to get better. Uh, so yeah, your
1: voice I, doesn't sound great.
0: <laughs> I, I'm actually, I sounds, I sound significantly better. Kelsey keeps telling me I look peaked. She's like, I pity you. You look peaked. So, uh, anyways, Dang. I, I'm, I'm on the mend. But, but yeah, it's been a rough week and a half having kids. It's another fun part of it. Uh, so yeah. yeah. No, no COVID though. No COVID. No flu. Like I got all the tests, so I'm, I'm clear on those. I'm just coughing up along. So. Yeah, I'm doing okay, though. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Jasmine's going to tell us a little bit about a, a judge who blocked part of the federal vaccine mandate. That happened here in Kentucky, and then that kind of went national. There's uh, Another part of that story. Um, I- I'm going to talk to us about redistricting. It's an ongoing saga we've talked about a few times. So we have an update there. Uh, Jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about the West End TIF, which was something we talked about during the session last year. We've kind of updated a couple times throughout the year now. And I'm going to talk to us about COVID. So, without any further ado... Jasmine, why don't you tell us about the federal vaccine mandate?
1: All right. So on Tuesday, yesterday, Judge Gregory Van Tatenhove issued an opinion granting Daniel Cameron's request for a preliminary injunction to block Biden's vaccine mandate for federal contractors. We've talked about this a lot before. A preliminary injunction is basically a temporary one until a case is ruled on the merits. Um, But it's a pretty high standard to get a preliminary injunction. We've also talked about judge Van Tatenhove before he is an Eastern district of Kentucky judge who was appointed by George W. Bush. um, So a more conservative judge. And you may remember his name because he issued the ruling about in-person worship back in, 2020 like season one of the pandemic
0: yeah and that was that was another big win for daniel cameron and the attorney general's office right
1: yes here's a quote from the opinion that kind of tells you like what the case is about Uh, van tatenhove wrote this is not a case about whether vaccines are effective they are nor is this a case about whether the government at some level and in some circumstances can require citizens to obtain vaccines it can but the question is Can the president use congressionally delegated authority to manage the federal procurement of goods and services to impose vaccines on the employees of federal contractors and subcontractors? And he said, in all likelihood, the answer to that question is no. So he granted the preliminary injunction. Um, So there's there's a lot of big words there (laughs) in that. Question. Um, basically, this is an administrative law case about whether the president had the authority to act. And it has to do with federal statutes about um, contracts for goods and services. And so Van Tatenhope took issue with Biden's use of this federal procurement statute. Um, to require vaccines for employees of federal contractors. He said, if a vaccine mandate has a close enough nexus to economy and efficiency in federal procurement, then the statute could be used to enact virtually any measure at the president's whim under the guise of economy and efficiency. So that's that's the standard for when the executive can act um, under this procurement statute I think the specifics of the procurement statute don't matter a lot for our purposes, um, because this isn't really like a federal law podcast.
0: <laughs> right. I, I do have a question about that, though, Jasmine. Yeah. So, okay, it's like the the quote you just read, uh, you know, if a vaccination mandate has a close enough nexus to economy and efficiency in federal procurement, dot, 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 you know, anything that the president wants can, can be done. And I mean... I don't know, this is a maybe a little bit more as hysteric of a question than we're used to asking. But, uh, I mean, isn't that kind of the nature of, of, like, the interplay between courts and laws now anyway? Like, basically, the president, like, makes a rule like this, and they find a conservative judge to go in front of to be like, no, you can't. And, like, the actual argument, I mean, it really just depends on, the result they want, and it's going to go up to the Supreme Court, who's conservative, and we'll get a conservative opinion on it. I mean, it, yeah, the, I think that's correct. <laughs> yeah, the rest of this is just kind of theater. Like, it's just kind yeah. of like, we have we the president put in place this, this uh, vaccine mandate. And, uh, you know, because COVID, you know, it's definitely not under control, but we uh, conservatives, Definitely feel like we don't need as many restrictions and we don't need vaccine mandates. And because that's the case, we're probably not going to get this vaccine mandate uh, unless we have a law. And even if we get the Congress to pass a law and the president signs it, like the Supreme Court still has the ability to just kind of overrule them. Uh, and that's that's I don't know. That just kind of feels like where we're at as a country right now. Mm-hmm. So like these rulings are. are are just kind of, at the end of the day, a reflection of the political stances of the judges themselves. Am am I, like, way out of line or being way too cynical when I say that?
1: Um, No, I think that that is correct, and I agree with that take. And that's why this segment about this lawsuit, there's not a lot of specifics about, like, his analysis about uh, the statutes because, one, I don't have a PACER account because every pacer search costs money um side note it should be free but it's not so i i didn't i don't have the full opinion that's one reason the other reason is because honestly that kind of stuff doesn't matter for at least our purposes (laughs) because this is about yeah using the courts getting conservative judges um to find a way to affirm or reverse the thing that Republican attorney generals want.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is the this is the the product of a political process that took like twenty years and Mitch McConnell's like heart and soul to achieve, right? This is like a, fe- a mm-hmm. conservative federal judiciary that can basically just overrule a Democratic president and Democratic Congress, and and when you have that, you get the policy outcomes that you want because ultimately everything goes up to the Supreme Court, and if they decide it's the way that it is, that's the way that it is, unless the Congress and the president yeah. change the judiciary, which doesn't seem like it's likely to happen anytime soon. Right. Yeah.
1: So in this case, the injunction applies to Kentucky, Ohio and Tennessee. But shortly after this ruling, which was from the Eastern district of Kentucky, a Louisiana judge issued a nationwide injunction for certain healthcare workers. So in the Louisiana case, in November, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, they issued an interim final rule mandating vaccines for Medicare and Medicaid certified providers, and the Louisiana court issued an injunction to block that rule. And so Daniel Cameron also joined that suit as well. One of these is a nationwide injunction. This one applies to three states, and the difference is that they're, these two lawsuits are about different rules, not the same one.
0: Yeah. So the 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 lawsuit that Van Tatenhove made, that was about something. And, and so he restricted his uh, opinion to just this three states in Louisiana. he That judge issued a nationwide injunction. And that was about CMS. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that that's and that's the reason why it was able to be nationwide, I guess.
1: Right. And so also the Fifth Circuit has also blocked the OSHA vaccine mandate. And so the OSHA mandate is the one um, for like companies with more than 100 employees. And so the Fifth Circuit has blocked that. And then that's been challenged in several other jurisdictions as well. So they're all going to be consolidated and heard by the Sixth Circuit, which is our circuit. So we'll probably be talking about that soon. What happens when... There are several federal lawsuits with like common questions of fact. They're consolidated into one petition and then the court gets drawn at random. Um, So the Sixth Circuit won the OSHA mandate lottery.
0: Well, congratulations to them. Uh, Very happy for them.
1: (laughs) Well, so the Sixth Circuit also leans conservative, but. These are all administrative law questions, and the Sixth Circuit does have Judge Rogers, who's like an administrative law scholar. He was my administrative law professor, and he wrote the casebook on it. So he's well versed in these types of issues.
0: Yeah, uh, you, I mean, I don't know if he leans conservative or liberal. Uh, he
1: leans conservative.
0: All right, well, there you go. I mean, that's probably going to determine the the way he's going to vote. Well, you
1: know, we don't know. We don't know who's going to be on this panel, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But they do lean conservative.
0: Yeah, uh, I look forward to reading uh, a bad decision that's made in a very eloquent and interesting way.
1: Yeah, uh, and you know, I think. This case is is headed for the Supreme Court, like,
0: yeah, a lot of others. <laughs> well, and I mean, when we talked about this originally i mean i'm I'm being very pessimistic and, and kind of grumpy about this, but I and that's probably not totally fair. I think one of the things I said is like you know in questions of administrative laws, and, and really one of the things about the judiciary is like even conservative jurors, like they tend to take a broader view of things, and like if it's a conservative court. They will rule like against conservatives, even if it's in their benefit in the short term, because it's in their in their long term benefit. So we really don't know, you know, what's going to happen here because their their interpretation of how this is going to work in the long run, or what they think is the more conservative decision, is, is yet to be like kind of determined. I think, and there's reason to think like the conservative courts may want the federal government to have power to enact mandates like this. Maybe I'm not sure. Uh, so it is kind of like. It is kind of up in the air, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Was that does that make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I thought you were like wrapping it up. I didn't have anything to add there.
0: Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, then we'll move on. We'll move on to talk about redistricting here in Kentucky. So we have talked about redistricting several times already, and, and yes, it is the case. Many, st- many, many states have already wrapped up the maps that they're going to be used on the, both the federal and the state level. But Kentucky requires legislature, the legislature to actually pass the redistricting maps during a legislative session. So we had to wait. And Republicans control the legislature with a veto-proof majority, and therefore they basically have total control over their process. Their, their maps are going to pass over any objection from Democrats so long as their caucus will hold together. And, and it's likely that their caucus will hold together on an issue like redistricting. Earlier speculation made it seem like some of the compromises that needed to be made were going to cause the process to be be delayed by about a year. Uh, Eastern and Western Kentucky stand to lose a a significant number of seats. Uh, And those seats are not necessarily going to, like, core urban areas, but kind of exurban and suburban areas are definitely uh, slated to, to gain a significant number of seats in in the legislature. And, uh, you know, a lot of the seats, in fact, almost all of the seats in Western and Eastern Kentucky, with the, ex- the exclusion of like two seats in Eastern Kentucky and then the Bowling Green seat in Western Kentucky, are held by Republicans. So basically, Republicans are, are determining who has who gets to lose their job. Uh, you know, these these three uh, legislators are in uh, one district now. Uh, which one gets to stay and which one gets to go? Uh, you know, who's overlapping who? Those are all really hard decisions. And it kind of made it seem, uh, earlier speculation did kind of make it seem like it, they were going to have to push this off by a year. Reporting, though, from the Herald-Leader earlier this week, quoted David Osborne, who's Speaker of the House, and Damon Thayer, who is the majority leader in the Senate, who said that they were, quote, very close, unquote, to having their maps completed. So similar to the recent past, Republicans said they hope to have a special session to pass the maps. Again, the legislature has to pass these things during a legislative session, but the governor can call the legislature into special session so that we could get these maps earlier. On November the 30th, though, which was just a couple days ago, Senate President Robert Stivers weighed in, saying that the legislature would pass maps during the regular session, which starts early next year, early 2021. When asked why a special session wasn't going to happen... Stivers said that Governor Bashir asked to see the maps before calling a special session. And Stivers' response, according to WFPL, is quote, It is not his role to set policy. It is ours, and where the districts are is our prerogative. And he can either veto it or not. If he does, in the regular session, we'll override. Unquote. So Joe Sanka of the Courier Journal tweeted that Stivers thought that seeing the maps was an unreasonable request. So that, that there's a lot to chew on in, in that quote from Stiver. So, so, you know, Jasmine, go back in time with me just to the beginning of this year in the 2020 legislative session. And it's full of complaints by the legislature that the governor was using too much of his power and thought that the legislature needed to be included in many of the decisions that the governor was making. So given Stiver's response about the de- delineation of roles and de- redistricting and being like, this is our job and not your job. I mean, it's pretty clear that everything he said in 2020 was just rhetoric, because that stuff that Governor Bashir was doing to respond to the pandemic was his job under the Constitution. And they basically were like, we would like to have our input matter. And Governor was like, no. Uh, And they were like, we're going to change the law. And here the governor's like, I would like to have my input matter. And they were like, no. So they're basically just doing exactly what they said they didn't like the governor doing before. I mean, am I crazy about that? Or does that does that seem correct?
1: No, I think that's correct. I I guess one thing that is maybe consistent about their position is they always say it's not his role to set policy. That was kind of their argument then too, but there was a lot of discussion about wanting the governor to work with them and working together and then Now they're not doing that.
0: Yeah, setting policy is like a really broad term. And you're right. Like, uh, they did continually say that. But setting policy is basically the whole government's job. It's the legislature's job Mm -hmm. to make laws. And it's the the executive branch's role to carry them out. And all of that is setting policy. Yeah. Uh, But I do think that the Republicans probably believe that it is not the governor's job to set policy. Uh, and, And given the way that the past like six years have gone, I think they feel like that's the case if it's a Republican or Democratic governor. And I think that the legislators who are Republicans would kind of like us to never have a governor at all. So, yeah, that's basically where we're at with that. But one thing that is the case is that Stivers isn't wrong. Uh, The legislature certainly has the right to pass maps without the governor's input, and and they they can and they will. They just can't do it with a special session. So the upshot is now Democrats don't know where the districts are, and Republicans do. The maps are written. They're in existence. Uh, Republicans can start using them, but Democrats don't have them because they haven't been introduced during the special session. Robert Stivers also said that the filing deadline would be moved back. As it stands, the filing deadline is just a couple of days after the legislative session begins. Not even enough time will have elapsed between them when the legislative session begins and the filing deadline for them to pass a law, even if they do it very quickly, even if they do it in that five-day stretch of time that they probably will use. So he did say, Stivers did say, that, that the filing deadline would be moved back, but he said it would be moved back, quote, Just for a short period of time, unquote. So, this puts Republicans at a really significant advantage as they know who is eligible to run in which districts. I do know that Democrats have been working really hard on recruitment this cycle and would really like to have more seats challenged than they did in the 2020 cycle. But, you know, it's highly possible that many of the candidates that the Democrats have worked on recruiting will end up being in the same district uh, just because of the way that the new maps are drawn. And then maybe uh, there will be new districts that are heavily populated where Democrats don't have a candidate because they didn't know the way in which the districts would be drawn. So by doing it this way, Republicans are significantly advantaged, but I guess that's just the way the cookie crumbles. In the end of the day, the whole process is way too political and is rife with the worst kind of gamesmanship. This is the way it's been done in the past by both Republicans and Democrats. You know, In 2010, when we did this last time, we were in court for a long period of time because of the Senate's uh, Republican map and the House's Democratic map, and and we ended up having to basically have a, a compromise brokered by the courts. I mean, this is a bad system, and just because, like, it's been bad for a long time doesn't mean that it needs to continue to be bad. I really think it should be reformed, but without a federal mandate, it probably won't be. So, I mean, I don't know, Jasmine. Do you think, like, the governor could have called a special session uh, and just gotten it out of the way so that the Democrats would have known where the districts are? Do you think that would have been worthwhile or was it, you know, a a worthwhile endeavor for the governor to kind of put his foot down and be like, no, I'm not calling a special session unless you show me the maps. Like, what would you have done if you had been the governor?
1: Hmm. I think that I probably would have called the special session for transparency's sake.
0: So yeah, I I don't know. I don't want to second guess Governor Bashir because he's much better at being the governor than than I. I would yeah, be.
1: That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm not the governor. What
0: what I, <laughs> I would have done is to have them call the special session, have the maps released, and if I don't like the maps after they adjourn, just veto them, and then call them back in a special session again. Uh, that that would be a different strategy that he could have taken. I don't know. There's probably some rhyme or reason to this. I, you know, I there. I don't know what the governor's strategy is on, on this specific topic. Uh, I can just kind of read the tea leaves. But anyways, it's a bad process. Other states have a yeah. better process, but also like other states have a better process. But because of the way that, you know, Republicans really in the South and in the upper Midwest have weaponized redistricting, some of the re- Democratic states that have, like, independent commissions are basically, like, overruling those commissions so that they can get more Democratic seats so that they were not, like, totally trounced in Congress. I mean, it's just, like – it's a, it's now basically an arms race, and it's just a really terrible situation across the whole country, which is just getting worse and worse. And and without some sort of, like, Democratic appeal to to increase, you know, better government and better drawing of maps – uh, it's just going to get worse and worse as as time goes along. So we really do need a federal law, and I don't think one is coming. So, anyways, that's redistricting here in Kentucky and elsewhere. Jasmine, why don't you tell us about the West End Tiff?
1: All right. So this is just like a short update about what's going on with it and. Something else that may be coming to the West End. So um, last week, the Courier-Journal did a piece about the West End TIF, and it kind of talked about the TIF's proponents and opponents. There has been a movement, and, and we talked about this on the show about a month or so ago. There's been a Stop the TIF movement from um, residents In the community, and 300 people have signed a Stop the TIF petition. And, uh, you know, I think the fear is that the TIF would allow developers to use tax dollars to more cheaply build homes and rental properties that will drive up the property value that would then force the people already living there out of their homes. And we've also talked about before, though, the bill contains some protection for homeowners. There isn't that protection for renters. And the neighborhoods affected by the West End TIF are majority renters. So Senator Gerald Neal, who, you know, is the Democrat who really helped like craft this legislation. um, He has said that protections for renters couldn't be done as part of the bill but that there are things that could be done to keep renters in their homes, like creating pathways to home ownership. Um, but that was really the only example I saw. But it sounds like that would need to be something done locally, not part of the bill from the General Assembly. Um, so Senator Neal is obviously for it, and he and Pamela Stevenson have been holding twice-weekly conference meetings to discuss the partnership and the TIF, um, making sure that The community knows what's going on and and try to answer questions and things like that, which I think is is definitely a good idea. And then the article also notes that Shamika Parrish-Wright, who is a mayoral candidate that was on our show a few weeks ago, and Councilman Ja'Cory Arthur, whose Metro Council District includes uh, neighborhoods that would be part of the West End TIF, they've both signed the petition opposing it. Um, so that's kind of where we are.
0: Yeah, I don't know if, uh, he signed it, but, but Tim Finley also, uh, mentioned to me last week that he was not a fan of the TIF. So, you know, this is an interesting question. I mean, we, we talked about this, I think the last time we talked about the TIF, but like, uh, Republicans wanted to do something about the Breonna Taylor situation, This is basically what they put on the table. And and Gerald Neal, you know, worked with them to get this passed, and it was something they put into law. And I think what Senator Neal was thinking, and I think Representative Stevenson as well, was like, this will be a net positive. It's not what we want, but it's at least something. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the opponents of the TIF seem to think that there are real major problems in here. Now, a lot of the things that they mention here were things that they definitely tried to address in the law itself, you know... uh, making like trying to make sure that the money didn't just go to out of, you know, uh, people who don't live in the West end who are just developers. Uh, I know that that was like something they try to work on in the bill. The rental stuff, that answer from Senator Neal was not, is, it doesn't, it's not my favorite answer. I will say. Uh, that, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't know about, about that one, but yeah, I mean, it just, I don't know. I I, I don't know. Back in the, the legislative session, Do you think that this was something they predicted might happen? Should they have predicted that this was something that might happen? And I mean, in retrospect, do you think they should have done this in the first place?
1: I mean, I think that it is something that could have been predicted because it was done really quickly. And I believe when we talked about what was going on in the session, there were legislators who wanted to talk more about this bill and work things out and do it right. And it all got passed in a rush. So I don't think it's surprising that there is some pushback from it. And and some of the pushback, I don't even think it's total opposition. It's we're skeptical. We want to make sure residents voices are heard that they're at the table. So I think that like there's some op- total opposition and then also just some skepticism, which is really fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's also the right thing to do for, for Senator Neal and, and Representative Stevenson to have these, uh, you know, the the weekly, or I guess twice weekly meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're, a lot of them are on Facebook. Yeah, they're I've on seen. Facebook. So, you know, I don't know, maybe for the people who are skeptical or, confu- or not confused, but are interested in getting some more information, that's a place where they can get it. So I mean hopefully hopefully that's that's meaningful to to those kind of people. Um but yeah, I agree. I I think it's kind of out of it was at the end of the session. It it got out of Senator Neals hands whether or not it actually got passed because the Republicans who sponsored this bill really did want it to get done and and they got it done. So uh you know, it's it's kind of an awkward spot because, like, this the this is, I don't, you know, Senator Neal and Representative Stevenson are, like, tagged as, like, the big supporters of this thing. And that's true. They are the people who kind of own it. But it was given to them by Republicans as, like, right, here's what. Right, this was
1: throwing them a bone, I guess. Like, I guess here's you can what have we'll, something. Here's and, what we'll
0: give you. And now yeah, you and have I, to defend it. Yeah, and they it.
1: know, yeah, and they know that it's not. Perfect or a solution, like a total solution. It's it's you know? not a
0: solution either. One of them would have picked as probably even in their top ten solutions, right? But in it, I mean, you know, it ta- it takes a level of people who want to listen to a podcast about Kentucky government to like understand the nuance there, uh, and that's just <laughs> not everybody, you know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. that's it. So I I kind of feel for Senator Neal and and Representative Stevenson about about this specific issue, but at the same time, you know. I hope that they're right that this is more of a net positive than a net negative and that the right kind of safeguards can get built in that addresses some of the criticism that the TIFF has had. So,
1: yeah, you know. and I, I mean, I also f- feel for residents who are skeptical or oppose it because, I mean, people in the West End have been burned a lot, you know, um, so I totally get why there's a movement against it.
0: Uh, I, I think you're exactly right there. They- there's a reason for people in the West and to be skeptical of any sort of governmental intervention yeah. into their lives because even – I mean, especially well-intentioned stuff. It seems like all of it has some sort of blowback or, or bad, unknown consequences that, that end up coming to, to get uh, the folks that live there. So hopefully the amount of pushback that they're getting and the receptiveness of the elected officials who are pushing for this can help make it so that either when we go into session in 2022, there can be some changes made. I mean because, you know, these two really did play ball last year. Um, so maybe they'll 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 get some help from the Republicans or or, you know, it's it's at least a net a net positive and, and not a net negative. So that's that. But there was, you know, some good news uh for the West End, right, that we heard last week.
1: Yeah. So on Tuesday, the governor held a press conference in Louisville where he proposed budgeting $10 million over two years to extend Waterfront Park to the West End. Um, so this expansion would cost a total of $50 million, but $10 million from um, the state. There would also be funds from Metro Council and private funds as well. Um, and so I think this would be a great thing to do. Um, but of course, the governor's budget has to be approved by the supermajority Republican General Assembly. So, what do you think, Robert? Do you think that this is something that could be feasible?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's definitely something, especially it's like, it's, a, it's an amount of money that can be spent that isn't budget-breaking, especially given the amount of money that the state has right now with the ARP funds and everything else like that. It would probably improve the standing of a lot of the folks in the state government and the legislature, I mean, better than the TIF would uh, in, in a lot of different ways than the folks that live in the West End. I am just kind of interested to see how it's going to work because the issue with the park and Waterfront Park has always been 64 which you know runs right through the middle of downtown Louisville. I guess are they going to put the park under the overpass, or I, that's that's something that I'll be interested in seeing how that's going to work. Is it going to be like two parks? Is it going to be like Waterfront Park East and Waterfront Park West, based on like where there's gaps and where the interstate is? Uh, so so that's that's something that I'm interested in seeing. Yeah, it's been it's been part of a long-term issue for a lot of folks who are kind of urbanists in in Louisville to to remove 64. Uh, from the middle of downtown and one of the big things was to say hey we could extend the park so much further if we were able to do that Um, i don't think removing 64 is part of this plan so being able to do this while maintaining 64 will be an interesting an interesting thing to see
1: yeah so the the vision for expanding it so it would expand it between 10th and 14th street in the portland neighborhood some of the features that would be part of the expansion were um, an observation pier that would have views of the downtown skyline and would also be designed to hold a large tent for events, an exerscape area, which would be um, an exercise area that would have a rock wall, ropes, a spot for outdoor yoga and fitness classes. Um, a fountain and sculpture mashup and Fort Onshore Plaza, which is named for the historic fort that once occupied 12th and Rowan. And so that would have like some s- historical significance. But it doesn't really say exactly how it would be accomplished. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. <laughs> it kind of makes interstate. sense. If you, if you go through the walking trail that goes that direction, it actually takes you through that area. And there is kind of like a weird blank spot there. But if that's where they're putting it, that would, that would that's not really a connected park like that. That's kind of like there would kind of be two parks and we could keep have them have the same name. There can kind of be... And, and honestly, that's kind of how it is now. Waterfront Park is kind of like two or three parks that are just kind of next to each other. Uh, there would mm-hmm. just be a pretty significant gap that would include like the heart of downtown uh and then we'd roll into a different park which i guess kind of works uh so anyways uh, yeah. hopefully hopefully they do it that's the first thing and then hopefully it looks good when they get it done so
1: Jacory Arthur was at the press conference and said that he is calling the new phase waterfront west so
0: that makes sense yeah i mean it would it would kind of be it would kind of be a second a second park um yeah i i hope so you know we need downtown louisville is kind of funky especially once you get Mm -hmm. west of ninth street you know that that this would i mean it's kind of the west end but also like that's the start of portland too you start getting into like bank street there at like 14th or 15th like that so it's kind of like yeah the start of the west end and the start of portland well you know interesting way to kind of build community hopefully um so hopefully the the legislature plays ball with that as well that's the second time i've said play ball so i'm not gonna say it anymore (laughs) All right, Jasmine, let's talk about COVID before we get out of here. All right, uh, since last week was a holiday, it's really kind of hard to say how accurate the data was for COVID. If we take it at face value, it was pretty good. Uh, Cases were down and deaths were down. But it's likely that there were some reporting anomalies last week, and since we're out of the holiday week now three days, it does kind of look like cases are continuing to stay in that plateau or rise slightly. Other signs, though, also point to a pretty scary situation. So... You know, uh, the the 7- and 14-day uh, average is for cases are actually down from last week, but the positivity rate has been going up quite a bit. So, I mean, we're seeing, like, almost a full point increase week over week in the positivity rate, which is really bad. But I looked into this, and it looks like the reason for this is due to a total collapse in PCR testing. Uh, the, the positivity rate kind of fluctuates up and down a little bit, and, and usually, like, small changes in that are probably due to increase in uh, you know, the positive cases relative to the number of of tests that get taken. Um, and, and, but kind of those things move in conjunction with one another. But last week, we saw a drop of almost 20,000 in our, our seven-day number total number of tests. And that's like a 20% drop. And our, our cases actually stayed roughly the same. So I don't know what's going on there. It, it doesn't seem normal. And it could be that it's a holiday thing. It could be that there's a reporting thing, that there's a lot of PCR tests out there that didn't get into the data. It might be a growth in the use of rapid tests, kind of a more secular change. I mean, I can tell you, like, the past couple of times that I've been tested for COVID, it's been a rapid test, even when I went to the doctor. So, you know, maybe that's going on. But the connection between the data points that make up the positivity rate, which are the total PCR tests that are given and the total number of PCR positives – it's It's broken down and and making that that's potentially making that um a, a much less reliable data point. So that's kind of where we're at with with that. But in terms of total number of cases, there's forty four orange counties and three counties in the yellow zone. Of course, the orange is ten to twenty five cases, and yellow is one to ten. Uh, total cases per hundred thousand population. That's a lot less red. Red has been twenty five plus. That's a lot less red than last week, and that's pretty good. As of Tuesday, Louisville is showing up as red on the state's map. On the city's data portal, though, uh, last week was an orange week, and Louisville only had about 1,300 cases. That's better than the past two weeks, but only slightly. So, for the past four weeks, Louisville has seen between 1,300 and 1,600 cases. But deaths in Louisville actually remain quite low. There have been 21 total deaths over the past month in Jefferson County, and there were 20 and there were 20 total deaths in one week uh, in October. So decoupling deaths from cases is really big deal. Of course, the biggest problem with COVID is that it kills people. Making people sick is something that a lot of viruses do. The problem with COVID is that it also kills a lot of people and sends a lot of people to the hospital. And the more that we can disconnect those two things, I mean, I wouldn't care if a lot of people got COVID as long as COVID didn't kill people and didn't send them to the hospital. So that would be great if we could continue to decouple that even further. Lexington remains in quite a bit of a plateau, but their rate is actually lower than Louisville's. Fayette County is solidly in the orange, so their number has gone up and down slightly, but it's definitely between like, you know, 18 and 23 or something like that, which is an orange uh, rating. Jefferson County goes between like 23 and 27, so it goes in and out of orange and red quite a bit. So Lexington, stable just like Louisville, but stable at a lower rate. Vaccinations fell substantially last week. It could be that all the data from the holiday week is quirky and that vaccinations are going to go back up, but it also might be the case that all the 5 to 12-year-old children with parents who are eager to get their kids vaccinated have now done so. Our 14-day average is now at 4,300, and the 7-day average is actually a 1,000 less than that, so that just shows you how far it's gone off a cliff in the past day. Kentucky's vaccination rate is again above 60%. Before we had our big correction, I think we were at like 63%, so we were almost back up to the place we were before we did our correction. I'm sure you've heard about the Omicron variant in the news in the past couple of week, weeks, and it's, uh, it's definitely freaking everybody out. It has not yet made it to Kentucky. I did see the United States got our first case of somebody who would traveled to South Africa, but it will be here soon. It is important to note that the way that this works, uh, it does look like it will be in Kentucky soon, uh, but it's important to remember that we just don't know much about it yet. Uh, it could avoid vaccines better than the other ones that we've seen. It might not. It could be, uh, you know, much more infective, it might not, it could be less deadly, and it might not be. There's a lot of just things that we don't know. uh, And we're going to have to wait for more data and information. So just do what you do to stay safe, get vaccinated. If you haven't get boosted, if you haven't continue to wear your mask and reduce contacts as much as possible. So that is where we're at with COVID. With the holidays impacting us, it was a weird week, we don't really know what happened. Hopefully, the data settles down and people keep getting vaccinated and boosted. Jasmine, any uh, holiday COVID stories to tell us?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I haven't had a COVID test in a long time. I haven't had any known exposure or anything like that. So I don't know. Nothing from me.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna edit out all the coughing I've done on this episode, but I've done yeah, quite a bit. you
1: coughing during the COVID update like gave <laughs> me some anxiety. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I uh, yeah, I you know I had a lot of anxiety. Uh, the baby was sick and she had a cough, and you know she didn't have COVID. I got it, so I pro- I was pretty sure it wasn't COVID. Uh, but you know, I, and the symptoms that I had, the only symptom I had in common with with COVID was uh, a cough, and it was a pretty wet cough. So I was pretty sure but I went to the doctor to make sure uh no covid so that's that's good for me. But yeah, it was stressful to have this during the holidays because you know mm-hmm. everybody wants you to come to stuff. Um yeah. but but at the same time you want to stay safe. My family's all 100% vaccinated, I think. I mean, there's some people I'm not 100% sure about but uh <laughs> you know that's their prerogative. But the fact that, I mean, I did take a lot of solace in the fact that I did get my booster shot two weeks prior to going out with people. Uh, that is a likelihood that I, I wouldn't catch it and wouldn't pass it on. So I did feel good about it, um, even though I did have uh, a little bit of a, a symptom, uh, a, a sickness that shared one symptom in common with COVID. Mm-hmm. So we are good. Uh, I'm going to edit out all the coughing I've done in the episode, uh, but I don't think I can do much about my voice sounding kind of crazy. All right. Well, that is it for the show this week. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings and contains our show notes. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com/my old Kentucky podcast and we are part of the Dimcast Network.
0: All right, everybody, thank you for listening and we will see you next week.